Welcome to She Is Your Neighbor, a show where we discuss the realities and complexities of domestic violence. This podcast is brought to you by Women's Crisis Services of Waterloo Region, a charitable organization in Ontario, Canada. I'm your host, Jenna Main. Join me as we talk to different people each week to learn how domestic violence impacts people from all walks of life. She is your neighbor, and we all have a role to play in ending domestic violence. This episode is called Experiencing Violence Amidst the Rwandan Genocide with Alpha Huranga. Alpha is a residential support worker at Women's Crisis Services of Waterloo Region. She recently signed a publishing deal for a book she has written about her life journey, surviving gender-based violence and the Rwandan genocide. This episode is part of our six-episode Survivor series, which focuses on the experiences of survivors of domestic violence. In this episode, Alpha talks about experiencing domestic violence as a child, and also about the violence she endured while living in a Tanzanian refugee camp during the Rwandan genocide. We talk about the journey to her new life in Canada, and the different support services that women have access to here. It was incredible to hear Alpha's story, and it was so inspiring to learn how she has overcome so much hardship, and then she has used this to motivate her in her career where she supports women who are moving beyond violence. Now, before we get started, I'd like to note that the following episode includes a discussion of domestic violence, abuse, and sexual assault, which may be distressing or traumatic for some listeners. Please take care of yourself, and don't hesitate to ask for help if you need it. I'd also like to thank Rogers for proudly sponsoring this Survivor Series. Hi, Alpha. Thanks so much for joining me today. Hi, Jenna. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's great to have you here. So excited. This is our first time we were just saying earlier having a staff member from Women's Crisis on the podcast. So it's so nice to talk with you. I'm so excited. Great. So can you just start by sharing a little bit about yourself? My name is Alpha. I'm a survivor during the Rwandan genocide in 1994. So uh, I went to Tanzania with my little brother who was four years old without our parents. So I lived in Tanzania for one year. And after I was reconnected to my parents who were in Uganda through the Red Cross. I was the first girl in 2002 to finish primary school. And I got a scholarship to go to secondary school. So from there, I got another scholarship to go to the advanced level, which was for two years. After two years, I got another scholarship, went to Makerere University, which is the best university in East Africa. I'm married with three handsome boys, working at Women's Crisis Services here in the region. And I think that's all about me. (laughs) 
It's great to have you here. And again, you work at Women's Crisis. I know you work as a residential support worker. So you work directly with the women and kids in our emergency shelters too. So, and then with your own story, you have such a unique perspective. So I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. So excited to share about what I'm doing with Women's Crisis and ready to jump right in. Great. So maybe you could start, I know you mentioned you're a survivor yourself. I know you've been through a lot in your life, but I wondered if you could start by sharing a little bit about your experience with domestic violence. Okay. I grew up in a pregnant marriage. My dad had three wives. So uh, the only reason why he could get the second wife was because he suspected my mom was going to have girls. So in my culture, girls, they're nothing. The way they take girls, like if you're having only girls, like you're not considered as a parent, as a mom. Yeah, some of the women, I remember if you have only girls, you're not going to stay in your marriage. So I grew up in a pregnant marriage and it was not that easy because I remember my dad, every time my dad could come home from the second wife, he could come to beat us, me and my mom, plus our siblings. So it was not that easy. I do remember um, a situation uh, where one of my half-sisters, she came to our house and took the biscuits. So when she took the biscuits, my dad came home and was asking for the biscuits. We told him, we don't know, we we kept them somewhere, but when we went to check them, they were not there. So because of, like, I was used with my dad beating me every time, I could count maybe in a week, maybe five times, and he could use belts, bicycle chains, like shoes, everything he could get, but usually it was like belts. So I remember that day I was with my little brother. I told him, you know what, we're going to die today. So I was like, let's run. So as we are running, my dad, because we are two, he didn't really know if he's going to follow me or follow my brother. We went and hide somewhere. And then someone went to um, my dad and said, oh, I saw your kids. They're hiding somewhere. What's going on? Then my dad came and found us. What he did, he tied me and my brother on the bike and then started riding for like 20 minutes. I will never, never forget that because I knew that I was going to die. I still remember the voices of people saying, kill them. They are your kids. Kill them. So I went through a lot. I think another thing I can share, it's about my mom. Like every time, maybe my mom would be beaten maybe three times a week, me five times with my siblings. There was one time we knew that our mom was dead. He beat her to the point where she couldn't breathe. People came and were like, I think she's dead. No one touched my dad. No one said anything. Everyone was saying, oh, he's killing his wife. You can't say anything. So it was, it was so much. Sometimes I, there's a time when I don't want to talk about 
my life, what I went through, what my mom went through. It was not like a, my home. It was happening everywhere. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. It's really brave of you and to to tell your story. And I know it's so hard to talk about uh, those really personal details and it's it can be upsetting. So thank you for sharing that um, about what you went through. But what you said, you're just saying, you know, it wasn't just your family. It was happening all around you. Could you maybe explain a little bit more kind of what the culture was like? And I know you said um, girls weren't always wanted. So I wonder if you could share a little bit more about um, how those dynamics played into the situation. Yeah, in my culture, it's not like by then, even at this time, like women are useless. They're just there to have kids, taking care of their husband, and that's it. So growing up in that environment, me as the girl, I felt unwanted. Sometimes I could ask myself why I was born a girl, because everything that was happening was affecting girls, was affecting women. So it was easy and no one could talk about it. If you're beating your wife, that's okay. If you're beating your kids, that's okay. No one's going to say anything. So many times my dad made me sleep outside at night. No one would say anything. No one would take me. No. I had to stay all night outside. Like we don't have electricity. We don't have anything, especially in Africa. It's dark. It's a punishment. I need to sleep outside. So no one said anything about whatever was going on. In we, I think we deserved it. That's what, how they knew to suffer. We are not human. No one cared. So were there any supports in place? Was there anything like what we have here at Women's Crisis Services? Or were you more on your own? Uh, there were no supports. And... Uh, I also survived a lot of rape and from police officers, from teachers, from elders in the community. Those are the people whom we are supposed to go and say, I'm having a problem. When you reach to them, you know they will never help you. They're not going to help you. They are asking you if you want me to help you. I need to have sex with you which is sad. We didn't have anywhere to turn. Like I'm talking about every, most of the women in the society, they didn't have a place to go. That's horrible. So there was no help. Still now, there's no help. No one cares about women, girls. No one cares. It's horrible to hear that, especially when you say it's someone you, you're supposed to be able to go to for help and support and, and you can't rely on that. It would, I'm, can't even imagine how scary that would be. I know you ended up leaving home at one point too. And I'm wondering if you could maybe share a little bit more um, about your journey there. Yeah, that was during the uh, Rwandan genocide. Uh, when my I was living with my grandparents, my parents were living in another area. So um, I remember we were sitting home and uh, people came to attack us and I had to run with my little brother who was four years old. I think I was eight or nine. I don't know really when I was born. I don't celebrate birthdays like other people. So um, 
I had to run with him and hide for days. And then from there, I knew like my grandparents were killed. So I knew strangers talking close to us. I was hiding in the swamp. So uh, those strangers, I, I remember I was hungry. I needed to eat. My brother needed to eat. And I was like, we're going to die here. So let's talk, ask those people. We are hearing voices. Let's talk to them and see if they have food for us. So I went and approached them and we are asking, are you guys by yourself? I said, yes. Where are your parents? I said, we don't know. Maybe they killed them. So they're the ones who helped us. And uh, they were. They, I remember they shared with us that they are going to Tanzania, which was another country. But they looked at us and said, you know what? You're not going to make it. You're not going to make it. You're too young. It's going to be a journey. You're not going to make it. I remember telling them that I would try my best. I would try to see whatever I'm going to end, but I need, I would try. They said they will help my brother, maybe carrying him on the back. There was one guy said uh, his family were killed. He doesn't have anyone. So he's the one who helped my brother, carrying him on the back. I can't really remember the days. I was like more than maybe a week, uh, went through the forest. We didn't have food. We could uh, like drink from our thumbs, like drink from the ponds. Uh, we didn't have food, eating fruits from the forest. I remember seeing many people dying and I could count myself the next person to die. But I was lucky, my brother was lucky. We reached to Tanzania and we stayed there for one year. And I remember when I was in the camp because of what was going on, like girls were being raped every single second. So I had to change my identity. I had to make sure I put on trousers so I would look like a girl. From there, Everyone who was seeing me was thinking I'm a boy, but I did that because I didn't want what is happening to other kids to happen to me. I try, I, uh, like every time I was praying with boys, I was, tr I trained myself to do everything for boys so that everyone would know that I'm, I was a boy. So after one year, that's when we got reconnected with my parents. They were in Uganda through the Red Cross. In 2010, I was sponsored by the government of Canada to come here as a permanent resident. I went to New Brunswick in Moncton, lived there for five years, and then moved here. Oh, wow. I, I don't even know what to say. It's, it's such an incredible story. I just really do admire your bravery, Alpha, being able to get through something like that and then to be able to share it too. I, I really can't even imagine. And, you know, you talked about growing up in a home that was violent and then even worse you ended up in this camp which was violent as well and do you do you feel that you were able to like build some resiliency during this because you really seem like a very strong woman to be able to get through it all and I'm wondering kind of how you were able to to get through it all uh you know what I was looking side by side I was looking in front of me on my left on my right there was no one who was there for me. No one. 
I knew I had to be there for myself. I knew I had to do everything possible to fight for myself. So that's what I did. And uh, uh, there is one thing I always tell myself that uh, no matter what is going on, there is a day to cry and there is a day to laugh. I knew whatever I was going through is not going to be permanent. I knew something's going to happen. The way I tried, I knew that something's going to come out from me standing for myself. Yeah, that makes sense. You kind of had to rely on yourself in those situations, it sounded like. So I'm sure you built a lot of strength through that. Um, when you came to Canada, can you describe how how your life is different now from how it was? My life is different in so many ways, so many ways, because I remember, I think I was about 14 and I was asking myself, even asking people what we can do so that we can help women and girls. But there was no way, like me, me myself, I couldn't do something to help women. That's something that was in my, in my mind. I need, I need to help these innocent people but I didn't know how I, would, um, I was going to do it. So when I came here, I found out that it's a country of opportunities. If I survived in the forest, in the refugee camp, the beatings from my teachers at school, I'm going to survive in this country. So that's when I, ha- I was like, oh, I need to do something. I have to make sure that I'm doing something to help women and girls are going through domestic violence. I have to do something. I had to contribute. So life is, was good. was good because there are so, so many things were new to me. Everything was new to me. Never had a fridge in my home. I didn't know a microwave. I remember this is, <laughs> the story is so funny. Someone got us a microwave and I remember telling my husband, oh, we got a radio. Oh, so so i thought it's a radio so i have never cooked on stove nothing so everything was new to me but i was glad that my tears my hard work we are paying off everything i dreamed so i went uh, i remember i think was in 2015 14, I believe. So I was like, I need to continue school. In order to help women, I have to go to school. So I went to Eastern College and graduated with a distinction in, in, in criminology. I got an opportunity to travel to Atlantic region to, I, I think I went in maybe seven prisons, included four women. So I went there and uh, I had a conversation with uh, one of them, like every time I had like two hours to talk to inmates, what they are going through, what life looks like, how they end up there. I was like, yeah, this is my dreamland. I need to do whatever I need to do to achieve my goals. 
Well, that's so wonderful. And so then you eventually ended up working at Women's Crisis. I'm curious, can you talk about how that ended up happening? I know you started in criminology and then what kind of led you on this path? So when I came to Kitchener, I remember uh, I was searching, I'm like, I need to help women. And so criminology, it's about uh, there is mental health. I remember uh, the job posting was asking if you have any education or experience in mental health, addiction. So, and I was like, oh, I think that's a good thing because like when we talk about addiction, like when people go through a lot of things, they try to do things to help them to calm down, to help them disconnect, disconnect from the world. That's how the addiction comes in. Those are like things that come together. So I was like, I need to apply for this job. I need to join other women fighting for their rights. It's our rights as women to live in a free, violent society. And I was like, I need to join those women. So uh, I applied, I got a job. I'm like, this is something I wanted since I was little. Oh, wow. So then it came full circle for you. And can you tell us a bit about what you do in your role? I do crisis calls. This is where, like, if uh, a woman is having issues in a relationship, maybe needs help, sometimes they need, like, a shelter. They doesn't have a place to go, and they're stuck there. So if they call, I we need to do an assessment and see if they need a shelter stay. If it's not, we have, like, outreach workers who go to homes and uh, help those women. Sometimes they doesn't have a place to go. They help them with housing applications. They teach them about domestic violence. If they need maybe uh, information about court, they help with that. So basically those are the things uh, we do, but also with the women in shelter, we do help them in everyday life, we need to make sure if they come to shelter and say they doesn't have income, we had we need to help them to find income. Also, we do like uh, we have a housing worker in our shelter, so uh, the housing worker will help apply like for housing, looking for houses. Like maybe if it's a market rent, we do try our best to find a place for those women and their kids. That's great. That's wonderful. And I, yeah, how does it feel to be able to work in this job after all you've gone through? And this is what you're really working towards by the sounds of it. Uh, It it feels like, um, I can't say I'm stepping in my purpose. I'm already there. But sometimes it's very emotional because I could, sometimes I, I, when I see them, we're there, especially when they are coming in a shelter. I could see their pain and sometimes I go back and feel the pain as well. So sometimes it's very challenging. I remember sometimes that I do cry when they are sharing the stories of themselves because I had to go back to what I went through. I knew, I, I wish I had a place I could go uh, back home, but I didn't have a place. But I'm like oh my God, I wish I had a place like that. Because every time, every time someone comes to shelter and the, the most amazing part for me when they leave shelter, 
smiling, knowing that they have a place where they're going to, feeling that someone was there for them. And when they smile and in my heart, I'm like, wow, this is what hopes looks like. That's my amazing part to see them going. Because I could remember the picture when they came into shelter and the picture they are having now leaving the shelter. It's different. And sometimes they leave the shelter different people. Well, that's amazing. I'm sure it'd be so rewarding. And even though it's challenging, like you said, to hear the stories, and I'm sure it it brings you back to to your own experience, I'm sure it's really wonderful for the women to be able to connect with someone who's gone through something similar. Um, And I'm sure they feel kind of the empathy from you that to know that you're someone who understands what they're going through. And I, I think that would make a big difference. I also know that you have um, a book coming out, which is so exciting. You shared this with our team a couple of weeks ago, so it was really exciting to hear. So I wondered if you wanted to share a little bit about that. It has been a journey about my book. I remember when I started writing, um, my son was from school and then I watched him coming. And I asked him questions, how was the day, things like that. And my son was eight years old. So when I was asking questions, when I was looking at him, like playing, I remember it was like maybe a rainy day, praying in the mud. And I was like, oh my God, my son is eight. Um, I was in 1994, I was eight. I could see how innocent he is. I could see he's still a baby. But to me, at that age, that's when I was in the forest, eating nothing, going to another country on my foot. And I was like, no, I need to grab a pen and a paper and put this story down. So I'm sharing about my life what I went through in my book. And I'm so excited and happy that someone picked my book. I can't wait to read it when it comes out. I know it will be so inspiring. So I'm so glad you're able to do that. Um, I'm also wondering if you could just share why this conversation is important to you. You know what? Women have been going through a lot. It's not today. A hundred years ago. I think even more to that, they called them names, their weaker sex. What they know is to have kids and take care of their husbands. But I'm so glad today I can see the progress. And to come to this, it's because of these conversations. We need to talk more what's going on. We need to stop sitting and watch. These are our mothers, they are grandparents, they are our sisters. We need to talk more about this to end domestic violence. I totally agree with you. I think the more we talk about it, we can kind of remove some of the shame and stigma that can be associated with it. We can talk about the fact that it's okay to talk about it's happening. So let's address it and and try and get people the resources they need and, and prevent it from happening too. Yeah. 
I'm also wondering, so this this podcast and this project, it's called She Is Your Neighbor. And the reason we're doing it is because we want um, to really think about how we can all be better neighbors to women and kids who are experiencing domestic violence. So I wanted to get your thoughts on what you think we can all do to be better neighbors to those experiencing domestic violence. When you see people sitting and watch women and kids going through whatever they are going through and they don't care, to me, it is a sign that our society is sick. We need to find the medication for this. And the only way we're going to do this is to see our neighbors, women and kids, and feel their pain and see how we can help. Good people, they don't hurt others. If someone is hurting another person, there is something going on. And we need to find out what's going on. We as a society... If we are sitting and say, okay, I don't care, they deserve that, there is something going on. We should be there for them. We should be there for each other. It is not something I may ask people to do, but it's our obligation as human beings to take care of each other to make sure that everyone is safe in this planet, especially women and kids. So I feel like people, neighbors, we should ask every time what's going on. This is something that has been going through for a long time. We should do something. We should protect each other to stop domestic violence. Thank you, Alpha. I'm so grateful to have you here today. It was so great to talk with you. It was just really inspiring to hear your story. Um, before we go, I just wondered, was there anything else that you wanted to add that we didn't cover that you think was important that you wanted to mention? I would say uh, all to all the victims of domestic violence and those who are still going through, I would call it like a pandemic, another pandemic, right? to stay strong, to fight for themselves, to ask for help because people are willing to hear them and help them and to tell everyone that it's not their fault. It's not their fault. Thanks. Thank you, Alpha. That wraps up this week's show, but the conversation is far from over. We want to hear what you think. Use the hashtag SheIsYourNeighbor on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, or Twitter and join in the conversation. We all have a role to play in ending domestic violence.